And sometimes when we look back at Abraham the faithful, we think, well, you know, he's this great man of faith, and we forget where he came from. It's important to remember where he came from so that we can see where God took him and where God takes us. Now, chapter 12, Abraham didn't do altogether very well. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, told us that the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So what did he do? First of all, he followed dad. As we talked about last week, it was a terrible mistake. Then he took along his relative, Lot, a nephew who caused a lot of trouble. And then he settled in Haran, which was on the edge of Chaldea, with one foot still in the homeland and the other foot heading toward the promised land, but staying in his homeland. He didn't make the break that God called him to. Sometimes the break is necessary in our Christian lives. Sometimes the break is necessary from, as it was for Abram, family. Sometimes from homeland. Sometimes it's just from comfort. But the break is necessary to follow God. And you need to be aware of that. We see that happening with Abram. Now, Abram finally musters the faith to leave his father and his homeland. But he still has Lot with him when he heads into Canaan. And there, suddenly, Abram's life begins to get altered, changed. Things begin to happen for him. And he sets up the first altar. And he begins to sojourn, as you recall, along across the land. So he's a sojourner, a foreigner in the land, looking for a real land that God will call him to. And he's building these altars, these places of worship. And then, famine hits. Oops. So Abram heads down to Egypt, which God did not tell him to do. He did that on his own. God said, go to the land of promise, the land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to bless you there, Abraham, or Abram. And he goes there, but then he goes on down to Egypt because things start to look a little shaky, and that's so much like me. When everything is good, it's real easy to follow, but then when things start to get shaky, I, I, I have to come up with my own plan because God's original plan, well, maybe he's forgetting, or maybe it's changed, or maybe I, I'm not really listening right. And God's saying, look, stick to my blessing. Stick to the place where I said, I will bless you. So he goes down to Egypt, and there he lies to protect himself. Sarai joins a harem, and Abraham picks up a ton of goods. Sheep, oxen, donkeys, servants, and one serious bad. A whole lot of goods, one bad. For it was in this place that he picks up an Egyptian servant girl named Hagar, who will come into the story in a few chapters. But here's the good news with Abraham. All that kind of reminder, review. The good news with Abram is that God is a God of great mercy and patience. He doesn't give up on us. Even when we do foolish things, God does not give up. Alexander White said the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. It's not just one. Or you have a new life in Christ when you give your life to Him, but then it's one new beginning after another. Over and over, you find yourself revived, rejuvenated, quickened, as Marianne prayed, in your heart. Over and over. It's a series of new beginnings. Isaiah 30 verse 18 tells us, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. And Lamentations 3.22, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So, after several starts and stops and stumbles and footfalls of faithlessness, Abram, God's child of faith, begins to mature. And you're going to see him do some extremely mature things in chapter 13. Let's start in verse 1. It tells us that Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. 
It's a good sign. He's going up from Egypt. Remember when you go down to Egypt, it's always kind of a symbol of heading into the world. But now he's coming out. He's getting away from it. He's coming up from Egypt. And what does Abram do when he comes up from Egypt? It says, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Verse 2, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. You see what's happening? He's getting out of Egypt. Lots of mistakes, lots of failures, embarrassments but now he's coming back into the promised land and what's the first thing he does? He goes back to the beginning. He goes back to that place, that first altar between Bethel and Ai. Between, remember, Bethel means the house of God and Ai means the dump. That place between the dump and the house of God, that place where we spend most of our lives, heading toward the house of God, hopefully away from the dump. It's interesting that in Egypt, Abraham never built an altar and he never pitched a tent. We don't read that he did anyway. We have no indication that while in Egypt, Abraham worshipped. And like Abraham, when we get so focused or distracted on the things of the world, that's when our worship tends to go out the window. But back in God's land, Abram returns to the altar, worshiping and being altered again through the experience of worship. And Abraham is also pitching his tent again. He's a sojourner. Hebrews 11.10 tells us he's looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, I want to just pause for a second to encourage you. When we studied Revelation, we ran across this very thing. And it's, it's what to do when you're stumbling out of faith. When you feel like the faith that you have in God, or maybe once had in God, is starting to get really lean. How do you deal with that? What do you do? Abram went back to the beginning, back to that place where he worshipped God, where, where he heard God, where he was fellowshipping with God. He went back. Flip in your Bibles. Keep a finger there and flip to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Jesus is in the book of Revelation, as many of you know, giving a revelation of himself and of what's going to happen to the Apostle John. And in this revelation, he begins to give letters to each of seven churches. Now, very quickly, those seven churches are historic churches in that they were real places that received these letters, but they're also prophetic churches in that if you take the seven churches in Revelation and overlay them across the last 2,000 years of church history, they line up pretty well into seven specific time frames, seven church ages within the larger church age. And right now, Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus, that first century church, the early church. And in verse 4, he has just told them all the great things he, he thinks about them. But verse 4, he says, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. He says, Ephesus, for all the good things that you are, man, you are solid in doctrine and very sound. You are kicking out the naysayers. You are paying close attention. You're following me, but you've forgotten your love. You need to get back to the love. And in verse 5, Jesus says, therefore, and here's the key, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. And this is exactly what Abraham is doing. He's going back to, the, to where it all began. He's remembering his connection with God and he's calling out on the name of the Lord. He's repenting. And gang, repentance is not a bad word. It's a good thing. 
that we even can repent is a miracle. Repentance is just our way of saying, God, I've messed up. May I please come home? Can I turn around and be with you again? It's turning back to the Father. And any time you in your life spiritually feel dead, you feel distant from God, you feel like you're missing something, return to the last place you remember being close to God and repent. Very practical, and that's what Abram does. Flip back to Genesis chapter 13. Starting in verse 5. Tells us now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. Abram at this time, guys, had amassed vast wealth. Huge amounts of possessions. As a matter of fact, he was somewhat of a chieftain in his own right. I mean, he had hundreds of people under his authority, people following him. And you'll see this in chapter 14, even at a point where he has to go to war, he calls on 318 men out of his own household. Abram is spreading out, but Lot is too, and they're starting to scrunch up against each other, and it's not good. So verse 7 tells us there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Make a note of that. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please, separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Now, in chapter 13, I want to show you something I find fascinating, that Abram begins to show some true spiritual wisdom. And I want to show you three ways that you can see the wisdom of Abraham, but also three ways that you will see the weakness of Lot. The wisdom of Abraham and the weakness of Lot. The wisdom of Abraham, number one, Abram is spiritually direct. He's spiritually direct. He sees the problem. There's too much in his stuff and in Lot's stuff, and the herdsmen are beginning to fight and argue over the land. And so what does Abram do? He goes right to the source. He goes straight to Lot. He is spiritually direct. He deals with Lot. Verse 8, he says, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. He deals with the problem head on. He deals with it directly. He doesn't beat around the bush. And this is always the biblical way to deal with a brother or a sister in Christ. Deal directly. Go to the source. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. In private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. That's key. That is so important in following Christ and in doing the biblical model. But listen to this, and it's important. You can't control another person's response. And what's interesting in Scripture is that Jesus says very clearly... You go and you show him his fault in private, and if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Well, what if he doesn't listen to you? Well, Jesus has some more things to say about that. But the bottom line is not his response. It's your responsibility. A lot of times as human beings, we go looking for response. When someone causes a problem or when I have strife with another person, I go looking for a response from them. I want them either to apologize to me or I want them to respond in some way. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to go to them. How they respond ultimately is going to be between them and God. But regardless of how a person responds to you, you go. You go to them. Abraham shows us that he deals directly. Secondly, Abram is spiritually discerning. He's spiritually direct. He's also spiritually discerning. The last part of verse 8, he says, uh, Hey, look, we're brothers. 
we're brothers, Lot. And he goes on, well, he noticed something that's interesting, and I, I told you to check this as we went by it. The last part of verse 7 tells us that the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Huh. I wonder what they were thinking about this strife between Abram and Lot. Think about this. Here comes this man, Abram, into the land, into Canaan's land. A man who's got a lot of stuff, and he's pretty spread out, and, and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the flashlights and the others, they're all there, and they see this going on, and so they begin to watch. And they see Abram build an altar and worship. And these polytheistic pagans are watching Abram, and they're going, well, that's weird. He's just worshiping one God. I wonder what's different about him. I wonder if he's any different than we are here. And they're watching the Canaanites and the Perizzites as Lot and Abram's herdsmen begin to have strife, begin to fight, begin to go head to head. And it's a problem. That is why, by the way, I believe the Bible tells us the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling men in the land. Abraham discerns this. He sees the strife, and it's not just a strife between him and Lot, folks. It's a strife that could cause harm to the name of the Lord who Abram is there serving. There's all this strife and problem and, and stuff going on. Man, Abraham recognizes brotherhood. He recognizes with his nephew Lot that there is more that unites than divides. And oh, if the church would only know that today. Of all the different denominations and churches that are all over the place, if we would recognize what unites us and not what divides us. If we would stand on, on the name of Jesus and focus first and foremost on Him. You know, in this room tonight, if we wanted to, we could go around and just share specific beliefs that we have. Maybe pick one or two kind of off-the-wall things that you believe that you're not sure anyone else does. And by the end of the night, we could get in a big argument and have a lot of fun with it. We could have a lot of differences on how things are supposed to be done and on what the Bible says about this, that, or the other. The bottom line is we're here because we're united under the name of Jesus. And the church needs that. And we, my hope is, my prayer is that the bridge will be that kind of church that is not concerned about competition with other churches here in the North Whidbey area. Well, there aren't any right now, but down in like Oak Harbor, churches in Anacortes, that we would look at other churches as brothers united under the name of Jesus. Well, Abraham is spiritually discerning. The church needs that message. Paul is writing a letter, and he mentions two women. And these two women have a legacy for all time since he wrote the letter to the Philippians. Their legacy is they were arguers. That's what they're known for. Their names are Euodia and Syntyche. Euodia and Syntyche, and all we know about these two women is that they were arguing. That's it. Wouldn't that be a great thing to be remembered for over 2,000 years? Oh yeah, yeah, you get to heaven. Hi, I'm Euodia. Oh, I read about you. Yeah, you were arguing with Syntyche. Is she here? Yeah, she's over there somewhere. We don't talk anymore. Yeah. Total strife between them. Paul says this. He says, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. That's the answer. How do we live in harmony? In the Lord. You're in the same Lord. And Paul says, indeed, true companion, I also ask you to help these women, now listen to this, who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Now, wait a minute. Is this possible? Could it be that people who share in the cause of the gospel might not always get along? Have you seen it? It's the cause of the gospel. But we're still human. And we still have strife. We may not agree on everything, but folks, never, never forget, we do agree on the one and the same Lord Jesus Christ. He is our focus. That's brotherhood. 
Not doing everything the same. That's sisterhood. Not being in complete agreement about every, everything. That's family life. Focusing on Jesus who does unite us. Now, Abram also appears to discern, again, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. He knows they're watching. He's aware of them. John chapter 13, verse 34. You may have heard this many times. Listen again. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, it was not a new commandment. When Jesus said that, the Jews had heard that before. Going all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, it was love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the Ten Commandments, half of those commandments, were about loving your brother. Loving your neighbor as yourself. The concept of love was not a new commandment. So Jesus, what's new about this commandment? Listen again. He said, love one another as I have loved you. Now that was new. That's brand new. Because before Jesus, nobody was willing to give his life for all people, whether or not they loved him back. That's a new commandment. But he went on and he said, By this all men will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Which brings us to the third example of Abram's wisdom. Abram is spiritually dignified. Spiritually dignified. He's spiritually discerning. He's spiritually direct. And he's spiritually dignified. Verse 9. It tells us, he says, Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot was the nephew. He was the younger of the two. Abram was the one called to the promised land, not Lot. Abram had every right to say, Look, Lot, the trouble's over. You take your men and your herdsmen and your sheep and your cattle and your oxen and your manservants and your maidservants and you go left. And you head out that way, and I don't want this problem to continue anymore. I was called here. <laughs> I'm the spiritual one, not you. I'm the one building the altars, not you. I'm the one God spoke to. So Lot, get a move on. But Abram doesn't do that. He shows incredible grace, incredible dignity. He says to his nephew, look, choose the best of the land. Go ahead, it's your call, wherever you want to go. But choose a direction and I'll go the opposite direction so that we can share this land together. Abram had no idea what Lot was going to choose at this point. I read a quote. This was actually by George Washington. He said, when there is an elder man and a younger man in the same room, the elder man shouldn't mention it. And the younger man should never forget it. I like that. So in this scene, Abraham, Abram entrusts his future to the Lord, allowing Lot to go first. And consequently, Abram ends up more blessed. In fact, he ends up with the real blessing. And it's a great picture of spiritual maturity. Well, let's look at the weakness of Lot. Verse 5. Verse 5 tells us, skipping back a little, it says, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Okay? So what Lot has here, flocks. He has herds. And he has tents. But Lot is weak in devotion. He's weak in devotion. He has flocks, herds, and tents. He has everything Abram has except one thing. No altars. You'll notice as you read scripture that Lot never builds an altar. He never has a place of devotion. A place of worship like Abram does. You'll never read about Lot building an altar. He has tents. Okay, so he's a sojourner. I mean, he's saying, yes, I, I'm, I'm on my way to heaven. Yes, I am, I am one of God's, you know, I'm headed God's direction. I'm a sojourner. And he has herds. He has things to take care of. Nowadays, we might call herds ministries. 
And he's got all that going on, but he has no altar. He has no place of worship. And I wonder how often we live the same way. I mean, I'm a sojourner. I'm a Christian. I'm just a passing through. And I've got my herds, my things to take care of, my ministries. But what about my worship? What about Lot's worship? There's a problem. There's something missing here for Lot. And I'm talking about worship personally. When was the last time I just walked alone with the Father in the cool of the day? When was the last time I just worshipped God on my own? Just me and Him. When was the last time I even had the time? But I'm also talking about corporately. Do we praise the Father together? Do I seek out opportunity to worship with my larger spiritual family? There's a huge difference, folks, between personal and corporate worship. And both are necessary. Both are necessary. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us very clearly that that's what we're going to do for eternity is worship. So it's a good time to get used to it right now. And if you enjoy it right now, fantastic. That's what we're going to do in heaven. If you don't enjoy it so much right now, you're going to have to practice a bit. But it is the most wonderful thing that we get to do. Well, Lot is weak in devotion, but he's also worldly in desire. Verse 10. Verse 10 tells us Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Lot takes stock of the well-watered land, and he sees green. This is the place to raise my cattle. This is the place to raise my herds. But listen, folks, sometimes fertile landscape may just be the result of fertilizer. A thriving lawn may simply cover a healthy septic system. There may be disgusting filth underneath, and in this case, that was the case. Lot looks and he thinks with his, his head and with his eyes, and he thinks, this is great for my herds, but he misses the fact that it's bad for his family, bad for his daughters, not a good place to raise girls, because the direction that Lot headed was toward Sodom. That's where he chose, going to Sodom. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7 tells us, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 17:24 says, Wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. The eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. And Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5, and verse 26 says the following, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it, for when you set your eyes on it, it's gone. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. Well, Lot's eyes were delighted in worldly desire. He was looking at the land that he thought was most beautiful, and he headed there with no notion of Sodom and Gomorrah, which are soon to be destroyed. And as we'll see, Lot barely gets out of there alive. His wife doesn't do very well at all. Verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Which brings us to the third point of Lot, is that he makes a wrong decision. He's worldly in desire, he's weak in devotion, but now Lot makes a wrong decision. It's interesting if you follow Lot's path here, he first looks in the direction of Sodom, then he moves his tents down towards Sodom, and ultimately he will be living inside the city of Sodom. It's a step-by-step -step process where Lot gets closer and closer to Sodom. 
closer and closer to living in the center of that town. And verse 13 tells us the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And it can't get much more clear than that. This is where Sodom went, and where, where Lot went to live. Sodom. First he looks at it, then he pitches his tent toward it, then he settles down in it, and eventually, not only is he living in Sodom, but he is sitting at the gate of the city like a judge of Sodom, like a ruler of Sodom. He may have well been one of the ruling class in the city of Sodom. And this is where Lot ended up. Gang, this is how sin works. Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 tell us this very clearly. Sin is a slow step-by-step process. It's very rare that anyone dives in. It takes some time to work our way into it. Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 tells us, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Did you hear it? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So you begin to walk in that counsel. Or stand in the path of sinners. You walk and then you stop and stand in that group. Ultimately, or sit in the seat of scoffers. It's a progressive thing, sin is. But his delight, Psalm 1 verse 2 tells us, is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. What was the difference? Now, between Lot and Abraham, between their experiences, what was the difference between them? Abram's wisdom and Lot's weakness. Both said yes to the promised land. Both of them went to the promised land. But Lot failed to say no to the world. Sharon and I have talked about this a bit. That in churches so often you have people who are saying yes to God, yes to Jesus, yes to heaven, yes to Christianity, but we're not saying no to the world. People sitting in churches who keep saying yes to all the right things, but not no to all the wrong things. And consequently, we kind of are living between two worlds. And you kind of wonder, how many of us are really saved? Now, don't let me rattle your sense of salvation here, because you are saved if you've accepted Jesus. You're saved by His grace. But understand that surveys have been done in churches, recent surveys, that have shown that if it's just based on understanding of the Bible, that some 50% of evangelical Christians don't even know enough to be saved. That's scary. That's frightening. How does that happen? They're saying yes to Jesus and all the ideas that sound so good, but not saying no to the world. There's not a change that's happening there, not a recognition of what Jesus does in our lives. Jesus said, you know, no one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and worldly wealth. Unless Jesus speaking. Like Abram back in chapter 12, with one foot in Chaldea and one foot toward Canaan, Lot was trying to live in the promised land and in Sodom at the same time. And as we'll see in chapter 19, it almost cost him his life. Turns his wife from sultry to salty. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. Now, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth for I will give it to you. And then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. He does it again. 
From Bethel to Hebron, and this is the part I want you to really pay attention to. From Bethel to Hebron, God lays out a vision for the land. God says to Abram, this is the land I'm going to give you, and I want you to walk around in it. It's length, it's breadth. I want you to know everywhere that I'm giving to you. So start your sojourn, Abram. I'm going to show you the land. Where was Abraham standing when God said this to him? Where was he? He was standing on what today is called the West Bank. Now, if that doesn't ring a bell for you, the West Bank is the West Bank of the Jordan River, which currently is considered Palestinian territory. Even though it is owned by Israel, it's occupied by Palestinians. And there's a massive battle that's been going on for 40 years, longer than that. Been going on for hundreds of years. But the last 40, we've watched this whole Palestinian versus Israeli problem going on. But right here in Genesis 13, God says to Abram, I want you to, where you're standing right now, look around. I'm giving this to you. And at that point, in that moment when God said that, Abram was standing on the west bank of the Jordan. He was right there in that territory. The area that he walked around. Let me give you some history because I want you to hear this important recent dates regarding this land. If you're taking notes, jot these down. Number one. And first of all, before I tell you this, remember that Israel currently holds one-sixth of one percent of the Middle East. That's how big Israel is. One-sixth of one percent of the entire Middle East, all of the Arab and Israeli-controlled land of the Middle East, Israel has one-sixth of one percent. How'd they get it? How'd it happen? I'll tell you. 1917. In 1917... A declaration was made by Great Britain. For at that time, Great Britain was over the area that was called Palestine. And Great Britain owned it, and they, they occupied it, and they gave a portion of it to Israel in 1917 in what was called the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration. The Jews were given by Great Britain all of what is today Israel, and they were given what the world now recognizes as Jordan. All of Israel and Jordan was handed to the Jews for a homeland by Britain in the Balfour Declaration. Why? Because there was a Jewish man who, and his name, Haim, I think it's Haim Weizenman. Is that right? Sounds familiar? Haim Weizenman. He developed weaponry that helped Great Britain in World War I. And as a thanks to that... Balfour declared, they gave him in this declaration, they gave them their own homeland. They said, what can we do for you because you did so much for us? And Haim Weizenman said, we'd like a homeland, a place where we can live, where we can have peace. And so they gave him all of that land, all of Israel today and all of what is Jordan, which includes the West Bank and on the cross on the other side of what is Jordan today. That was 1917. But right after that, the Arabs cried foul. <laughs> we need more land. We need more land. Israel only has you know, one-sixth of one percent, but the Arabs need more land. We want the land. And you've heard the phrase, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. In this case, the squeaky wheel had the oil. And so Great Britain said, well, we need to rethink this whole thing. Five years later, in 1922, the League of Nations made a second declaration. And they took away 72% of the land that was given to Israel at the Balfour Declaration. 72%. They took that away. They gave that to the Arabs. Israel was left with 18% of what was originally given to them by Britain, which included Judea, Samaria, Shechem, Bethel, Ai, Hebron. All of that was given to what became Transjordan. 
Now it's Jordan today and other parts, but primarily Jordan. Only 18% of what was allotted to Israel in the Balfour Declaration remained theirs. But you know what? In that treaty, Israel, the Israelis, they said, okay, all right, we still have our land. We have this 18%. And they signed the treaty. And the Arabs signed the treaty. This was a League of Nations treaty. Folks, it was the last treaty that has been signed in the whole Arab-Israeli conflict. The last treaty. So the treaty that we still have on the books, that should still stand, is that treaty. That says, Israel has this 18%, Transjordan has this 72%, until 1948, May 15th. Now May 14th of 1948, Israel declared independence. A great and glorious day. And on May 15th, they were attacked from all sides by neighboring Arab countries. Five countries immediately attacked Israel. They were completely outmanned, outgunned, overpowered. But Israel fought back and maintained their independence. But when the war was over, the Jordanians had captured Judea and Samaria, including Jerusalem. They captured all this from Israel and they renamed it at that time in 1948 the West Bank. They renamed it the West Bank and even though it was under signed treaty, they took it back. But you need to understand something about a treaty. And this is why, by the way, the roadmap to peace will not work. This is the reason. Because for a Muslim, the idea of a treaty is a temporary thing. There is a doctrine called the, the Kuryash Doctrine. And it was one that was thought up by Muhammad. You see, Muhammad went into, into battle with people, and I believe it was in Saudi Arabia. And as they fought, they finally came together and said, look, no one's winning, you're losing people, they're dying, our people are dying, let's sign a treaty. And so he signed a peace treaty with them that they wouldn't fight, that they wouldn't battle for ten years. One year later, Muhammad had amassed great armies and, and great men and had more power and went in there and wiped them out completely, ignoring the treaty. And he was questioned on that. Well, Muhammad, how can you do this? You signed a treaty. If it's for the cause of Allah, if it advances the cause of Allah, then it is acceptable to sign a treaty and turn around and break it when you have the upper hand. And that has been held by Arabs, by, by um, Islam, by Muslims to this day. That's why the roadmap to peace won't work. That's why the League of Nations Declaration meant nothing because when the war happened in 1948, Jordan said, hey, we have the advantage now. We can grab this land. And so they did grab the land. And at that time, only two nations in the entire world agreed to their claim of that land. Great Britain and Pakistan. Nobody else did. There wasn't another country in the world that recognized that move with those two. And yet, it remained in their hands until, until 20 years later. And by the way, during that 20 years, Jerusalem and the neighboring area all just went to pot. It completely fell apart. Because as I've told you before, there is the only, only time that the Arabs ever really want Jerusalem or care about Jerusalem is when they don't have Jerusalem. When they have it, no one cares. When they don't have it, they want it. And in this period of time, this 20 years, when they had it, it totally went to trash. But in 1967... 1967. So you're tracking with me. We have 1917, 1922, 1948. 1967 now. The Six-Day War happens. The Six-Day War in which Israel recaptured Jerusalem. And it was an incredible day. 
And the general who, who led the troops into Jerusalem and captured it actually was up on the Temple Mount. His name was Moshe Dayan. And General Moshe Dayan is on the Temple Mount with all of his men. They have reconquered Jerusalem. They have it back. They have the Temple Mount back. There's cheering. There's, there's applause. There's wonder. And all of a sudden, Moshe Dayan does something that to this day is unexplained. He gave the Temple Mount back to the Arabs, to the Muslim clerics who, who were there. They had control of it. They had all of Jerusalem. But Moshe Dayan said, well, we have control of this, but we'll let you keep the Temple Mount. The only reason that I can figure for that is prophecy. Because there are things that the Bible says will happen. And that would have gone a different direction than God's plan. But amazing, the 1967 Six-Day War, Israel recaptures Jerusalem, along with, by the way, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, all the way down to Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, which they ended up giving back to Egypt in a later um, uh, treaty. But in that six-day war, at that point and from that point forward, Israel had Jerusalem, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip. It was there. They reclaimed what was theirs originally. And remember, this was all the land that Abraham walked on. That Abraham walked about the length and the breadth and looked at. God said, I'm giving you this land. It's yours. All of this. As a matter of fact, the land that God gave him was much bigger. It didn't stop at the Jordan River. It went all the way to the Euphrates River. But that's, again, another study. Well, 1968, one year later, Arafat claims Jerusalem to be the rightful capital for the Palestinian people. In 1968, Yasser Arafat comes out and he says, look, Jerusalem is our homeland city. It's our capital city. It's the city of the Palestinian people. Never mind the fact that three years earlier, when the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, formed, Jerusalem is not even once mentioned in their charter. Never mind the fact that it's not mentioned a single time in the Quran. Never mind that for three solid years, Yasser Arafat and his PLO never said a thing about Jerusalem being important until Israel reclaimed it in 1967. And in 68, Arafat said, no, this, this city is ours. By the way, there's also never been an ethnic group called the Palestinians. There's no such thing. There's never been a Palestinian group. Palestine was named by Hadrian. You remember Hadrian? We talked about him a couple weeks ago in 132 AD. Hadrian, the Roman emperor, was the one who salted the lands and destroyed, just decimated Israel. And he's the one who renamed the area Palestine, renaming it at that, at that time Philistine land. And it was a slap in the face of the Jews because their arch enemies from long ago were the Philistines. By the way, the Philistines were a maritime people who sailed down from Europe and landed on the shores of what was Israel and spread out that way. They weren't even Arabs, the Philistines. So Hadrian calls it Philistine land, Palestine. And that hangs on through all the years. And then it comes all the way up to Arafat. And he has created, folks, a false ethnic group that is not a true ethnic group. So who are the Palestinians? Jordanians? Syrians? Lebanese? Arabs? That's who they are. There's no such thing as Palestinians in terms of an actual ethnic group. See how all of this has gotten so twisted and distorted in our present day media and in our world? And no offense to, to Colin Powell or President Bush, but I sit back and I watch things and I'm, I'm amazed that they don't know this. 
but they don't get it. That this whole roadmap is is doomed to fail because of these things. How long, by the way, did God declare ownership to the land of his descendants, of Abram's descendants? Look at verse 15. Forever. I'll give it to you and your descendants. Forever. By the way, the, the Hebrew translation of the word forever here is literally forever. <laughs> I'm giving it to you. It's yours. This is your land. God promising. Abram, it's yours. And so Abram, he pitches his tent by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord, doing what he does. He's the worshiping sojourner. Now listen, Abraham is beginning to understand God's economy. Through what's just happening, giving Lot the best pick of the land or whatever pick he wanted, ultimately it wasn't the best pick, but he's beginning to understand the way God functions. How is that? Giving away the very best that I have allows me to receive the even better from God. Taking my best, my my heart, and, and giving it away, folks, allows me to receive better than I could have imagined from God. Bye, Hayden. Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 Peter began to say to him talking to Jesus behold we've left everything and followed you now listen to this this is great Jesus said truly I say to you there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age now in the present age brothers and houses and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life and what he's saying Jesus he's saying listen if you give up something for me in this world in this age you will receive a hundred times better anything you give up you're gonna get more how does that work I don't know if you knew this about me but I have at least a hundred houses I do, and I've got brothers and sisters a hundredfold, and I've got mothers, and I have children and farms all over the place. It's called the body of Christ. I've been blessed and, and, and blessed enough to serve in churches in California and Texas and Virginia and Washington, and in every single one of those places, folks, if I went back there today, I would have a place to stay. I would have family to hang out with. I would have places to go. I'd, I'd have people to surround me, mothers and brothers and sisters and children, A hundred times what I would have had if I had just held on to my little family and tucked myself away in my little world. That's how it works. The body of Christ, that's the master's multiplication. You've heard the phrase, you can't outgive God. That actually falls short. We can't even compete with the generosity of our Father. One last thing on chapter 13. Abram moved his tent and came by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. Well, Mamre means literally fatness or satisfaction. And Hebron means communion. So Abraham is now dwelling in the satisfaction of communion, in the richness of association in God's household. It just makes me think about feasting at the table with my brothers and sisters. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus said. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what does he say he'll do? He'll come in and do what? Eat dinner. Open the door, let me in, and we'll eat together. We'll have a meal. I mean, that, how relaxed and casual does that sound? Let me in and we will feast together. Now, we're going to do just a little bit. What time is it here? Okay. 
Give me about 10 more minutes. We're going to get into about halfway through chapter 14 and save the rest for Sunday morning. This is very cool. And something happens here with Abraham that's intriguing. But before I tell you this story, I need to tell you another story. 1976. In 1976, America celebrated 200 years of freedom. I was, how old was I then? 12 years old? Something like that. 12 years old. And I remember I went and saw the Freedom Train. Some of you may remember the Freedom Train that traveled all around and had all the, the things about our country's history. And I waited like four hours in the hot sun in Southern California to see that thing. And it really wasn't worth it. But I saw it. And we're celebrating our freedom. But while we're celebrating freedom, terrorism struck. You know what's odd is I recall as a child being aware of terrorism and it kind of frightened me a little bit. I had no idea that as an adult I would live in a world where terrorism was on the front page every day. Where terrorists were language, were words that children do know and understand. But at this time, June of that same year, of 1976, on the 27th day of the month, four terrorist hijackers forced an El Al, Israeli El Al airplane, it was an Airbus, to land at an airport in Uganda. That airport was called Entebbe. And they were met on the ground by four more terrorists. The eight of these terrorists freed the French crew and all the non-Jewish passengers, but they kept 105 Israeli hostages in a small room there on, at the airport. They demanded the release of 53 convicted terrorists and they set a 48-hour deadline before executions of the innocent passengers would begin. Faced with little choice, the Israeli government announced that it would enter into negotiations and they did. They did it to buy time. They didn't know what they were going to do until a general, General Dan Shamran, presented a seemingly impossible rescue plan, which even to this day seems crazy. The next day in Israel, a quiet and secretive dress rehearsal was staged. The impossible became a slim chance. It became their only chance to rescue these 105 Israeli citizens. And so off they went. And in Shamran's own words, he said, quote, You had more than 100 people sitting in a small room surrounded by terrorists with their fingers on the trigger. They could fire in the fraction, a fraction of a second. We had to fly over seven hours, land secretly and safely, drive to the terminal area where the hostages were being held, get inside, eliminate all eight terrorists before any of them could fire their weapons. It was almost insane. But the fact that no one expected the Israelis to take such a risk was precisely the reason that they took it. And so it is with Abraham. Look at verse 1. It came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. By the way, Amraphel may be Hammurabi. I don't know if you've heard historically the code of Hammurabi. He was a Babylonian ruler and king and warrior and very well known. And it's thought by many that Amraphel may be, may be the same, one of the same Hammurabi. But Amraphel and Ariok, king of Elisar, and Tetelamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goaim, and they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these came as alleys to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but the thirteenth they rebelled. So you get the picture. You've got these kings, this association of kings, and now they're going to war with these other kings because these other kings have now rebelled. Chedorlaomer was the kind of big king in the neighborhood at the time. And he had control over the whole area, but now this one area begins to rebel. A quick note on verse 4. Remember we've talked about before the principle of first mention. 
So the first time something is mentioned in the scripture, there may be something significant about that, so pay attention to it. This is the first time in verse 4 that the number 12 is mentioned. It's also the first time that the number 13 is mentioned. Big deal. Well, 12 throughout scripture tends to be the number of government. 12 is the number of government, while 13 is apparently the number of rebellion and anarchy. So you have these people serving for 12 years and in the 13th year they rebelled. And that is a picture that is borne out in scripture. 12, the the, um, number of government. 13, the number of rebellion and anarchy. Going on, verse 5. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Imim in Shaviah Kiriathim, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and they came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. You'll see Kadesh more, or Kadesh in the scriptures. And they conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, and those who lived in Hazazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboaim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goaim, and the other kings with them. Okay, get, get the picture here. That Abram now sees a problem arising. And the problem is that Lot is living with the king of Sodom, or in the region of Sodom. And the people of Sodom, under the king of Sodom, who, who have now rebelled, are now having to fight Chedorlaomer. Okay? Let's just keep it simple. Sodom, Chedorlaomer. And this battle's going on. And it tells us that in verse 10, the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. Just deserts, I guess. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Verse 11. They, this is Chedorlaomer and the gang, They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and they departed. Verse 12, they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. So Lot gets caught up in this and he gets taken off, his family and all his possessions, captured by Chedorlaomer and these other kings. So now Lot's in big trouble. And word is about to come to Abram and Abram himself launches an amazing rescue of Lot. Look at verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living, by the way, this is the first time the word Hebrew is, is attached to Abram. First time that it's seen here in scripture and he's called a Hebrew. And again, we saw that back before, I believe it was in chapter, chapter 10. Yeah, verse 21, that to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, or Hebrews, the Hebrews. So that's where Abram is now beginning to be called and recognized as a Hebrew. And he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the, Am- the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. So listen to what happens. Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive. And he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Amazing. Turns out, Abraham is not just a follower of God. Abraham is a warrior. 
Abraham is a tactician, a brilliant um, planner of battle, a brilliant strategician. He, he goes in with a crack squadron of 318 men. He launches a stealthy through the night guerrilla battle. And he pulls off an amazing rescue. And he gets Lot back. Now you may be wondering what happened at Entebbe, July 3rd, 1976, as the Israelis went after these hostages. Four Israeli C-130 Hercules aircraft took off at 1320 on July 3rd and headed south. The lead aircraft carried the rescue force led by one Lieutenant Colonel Yonatan Netanyahu, who is the older brother of Benjamin Netanyahu. Thunderstorms lit the skies up over Lake Victoria, but they came nearer the airport and something else was lit up, all of the runway lights, which were supposed to be out. So now they're thinking, how are we going to land and be undetected? But somehow they managed to do it. Somehow these four massive C-130 airplanes landed at the airport and the terrorists were none the wiser, had no idea that the Israelis were coming. At, at 23.01, they landed just one minute past their planned arrival time. The soldiers broke in, freed the hostages in a lightning attack. They killed all late terrorists in the process. Tragically, two of the hostages were killed as well, and one of the Israelis, Yonatan Netanyahu. Now again, he's the brother of Benjamin Netanyahu, who was one time Prime Minister of Israel and would like to be again. Benjamin Netanyahu is a, an expert on terrorism. His own older brother was killed in the process of it. But, despite all this, 103 people were rescued and back in the air by 2359. The entire operation took 58 minutes. And it was a huge blow to international terrorism at the time. Brigadier General Shamran later said that it resonated far and wide in the world. It told people that you don't have to sit down to terrorism. That you don't have to just let the terrorists run roughshod over you. Now, why are we talking about this and why go all this direction? Aside from being a Jewish mission, what does this have to do with Abraham's mission or Abram's mission to save Lot? Remember that when a subject again is first mentioned in the Bible, that there is great, often great significance. And we can discover a lot by taking a closer look. This is the first time in chapter 14 that war is mentioned in the Bible. Abraham literally goes to war with Chedorlaomer and these other kings to save Lot. And it's the first mention of war in the Bible. So what? So listen, God blessed Abram in this war. He supported Abram to win this war. It was a good thing, apparently, in the eyes of God. So what do Christians do with the subject of war? If you go to Anacortes, commercial and, and, and uh, 12th Street, every Sunday after church, just go over there some afternoon, you probably have, you've seen the signs. You've got the Bush supporters on the one side, you've got the anti-war crowd on the other side, and, and folks there are Christians on both sides of the street. They join up after church and they go down there with their signs. Obviously, the Christians in general don't know what to do with war. Most of us don't. There are the staunch Republican Christians who say, yes, we should go to war, we should support the president, and yes, it's important, and there are reasons, there are justifiable reasons to go to war. And there are Democratic Christians, a few less, no, I'm sorry, that probably wasn't fair to say, but there are Democratic Christians who, who are saying, hey, hey, no, 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 we shouldn't be fighting at all. And as a Christian yourself, have you wondered, what should be my stance on this? Because, you know, I mean... There's a certain amount of masculinity in me that likes to see the bombs going off. 
And I'll just admit it. And when the war hits the television, how many of you, when the Iraq war began, were glued to the TV, watching what was happening? Boom, oh, there was a big one, wow! You know, we, and we, we try to act like we're really concerned and, and serious, but we're going, oh, that was cool. No, someone was hurt, I'm sure that's not good. Wow, was, you know. How do we as Christians deal with this whole issue of war? The Bush administration, as of right now, today, is on the hot seat with Iraq. I mean, you know, the pressure's on. Hey, there's no proof of, of weapons of mass destruction here. Maybe we were lied to to be led into this war. Well, the Bush administration is going to have to figure out and, and answer all that. But listen to this. Is war ever justified? James chapter 4, verse 1 tells us the following. James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? that wage war in your members. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James tells us that the primary motivation for war in our world is lust. That's the main reason why man goes to war. It's lust. It's desiring to have something that you don't have. But listen, there is a war biblically that is justified. There is a war that the Bible shows us, tells us, is alright, is okay. How do you know if the war is lust or if it's just? It's all a question of desire. What is the desired outcome to the war? In Tebe, which I just shared with you, I shared for a reason. It was a story of liberation, of freeing hostages. Abram's story was also a story, a war of liberation, freeing Lot and, and his people. There is a war that's justifiable. It's not about territory. It's not about possessions, ideology, or politics. It's about liberation. A war of liberation is a justifiable war in the eyes of God. When a people are put down, when a people are enslaved, when a people are trapped or terrorized, liberation is a just reason to try to set them free. It's a just reason to go to war. And by the way, that's the war which has been waged across time. It was fought and won on a cross just outside of Jerusalem. And in this war, the victor didn't take life, he gave life, his own. In this war, the victory was borne out by sacrifice, by shed blood. Jesus shed blood. And he's the only one who is sufficient to rescue us from the terrorism of sin and bring us safely home. Now, we're done for tonight. Abram is about to actually have a spiritual experience that will blow your minds. And if I had another two hours to talk to you tonight which would be fine with me, but there are people coming Sunday who will miss out on this. So be here Sunday morning, because we're going to see the rest of this story as Abram returns from war. He returns from battle, and what happens as he meets a couple of very interesting characters on the field. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your words and for your teaching. Give us understanding, Father, so that as we live in this world where decisions are difficult, where there are so many gray areas, and where the lines have been blurred, where people say there's no longer a black and white, Father, we know that there is. We know that there is truth. We know, Father, there are absolutes, and we seek these absolutes in Scripture. 
Continue, Father, to make us students of the Word so that we can know how to live and move and think and be in this world. And Jesus, I just pray for everyone tonight that you will impress on our hearts what what you want us to hear and that you will help us to take out of this study something meaningful and important for us. Father, thank you again. We know that your word never comes back empty, that it always comes back full, having succeeded in the matter for which you sent it. So bring us back full tonight. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.